message to remind you that this Sunday is Communion Sunday, so at the very end of this message, we're going to be sharing the elements for Communion. So uh, if you want to just get something in preparation for that, you can do that right now because for the next five minutes, I won't be saying anything very important. You're not going to miss it. But this is episode six of our current series on John the Baptist. And uh, our focus today will be Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. And this uh, episode is entitled, Disappointment with God. Father, we thank you for the opportunity again to uh, look at your word and meditate upon those things which you have revealed to us through those who have written down the Gospels. Thank you that these are authentic incidents and the uh, message we can learn from them is authoritative and inspired. And so we come with, uh, without any kind of filters or reservations. We just want to hear from you and uh, allow you to not only speak to us, but to direct us as to how we are to live and where we are to go. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after 400 years of spiritual famine and drought, there was climate change. A genuine prophet appeared in Israel, John, the son of Zechariah the priest. And he had a compelling message from God, which refreshed the promised land like showers of blessing. And the message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, John became one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. And he was a theologian of the highest order. And his Christology was unparalleled. Listen to some of his statements from John chapter 1 and 3. He did not fail to confess, I am not the Christ. Among you stands one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I have seen and testified this is the Son of God. I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. He must become greater. I must become less. Now that is good theology. It's the kind that refreshes and restores our soul gives joy to the heart and light to the eyes. Theology like that endures forever. But, the, but John was not just a major theologian. He was also a prophet like Elijah. And that's what got both of them into trouble. In Luke chapter 3, verse 19, it says, But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, John added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. You know, it's one thing to denounce the common sinners, the commuters, the civilians, the millennials out on the street. It's another thing to take on the big boys up on the hill, the ones that play hardball. And the irony was that King Herod kind of followed John on Twitter. It says in Mark chapter 6, verse 20, Herod feared John 
and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Herod was impressed by John's preaching style and by the impact it had. John's messages stirred something within him, in that hardened heart that had been strip-mined by overindulgence. Germination was taking place. It's kind of like Trump. He seems to be fascinated with Christianity up to a point. Until it talks about admitting your mistakes, confessing you've lied, and forgiving your enemies. That is going too far. He has a reputation to protect, I suppose. And when you've got that much power, it's hard to humble yourself. So Herod was fascinated by these messages. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, he might have even considered John for the position of royal chaplain. After all, John's public ministry was, was decreasing, and it could have been a timely career move with possibly a royal pension, why you'd be set for life. Herod heard John. He was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Many are intrigued by the gospel, and they're willing to listen from a safe distance, as long as it doesn't get too specific and too personal. And that's the problem with prophets. Getting personal is their specialty. Herod might have been willing to confess his other sins, except that one. When John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, he locked John up in prison. Because that was Herod's weak spot, the one sin that was non-negotiable. It's like Hollywood. They launch an endless parade of righteous crusades, anti-drug, anti-racism, anti-guns, anti-harassment. But don't mess with their precious. Their R rating. You don't threaten to censor their gratuitous sexuality. Whatever you do, you don't touch that one. They'll never give that up. I wonder if there's a cherished sin in your life that you'll never let go. So John was a fascinating speaker from a distance, but not at point-blank range. That's when the intruder alarms were triggered. John rebuked Herod because of Herodias, his brother's wife. Wow, this was a real soap opera. You see, Herod's half-brother had a daughter named Herodias, who married another half-brother named Philip. Philip had no kingdom of his own, so he lived as a rich aristocrat in Rome with his young wife. Well, as the world turns, when Herod visited Rome, he stayed with Philip, where he seduced his young and restless, desperate housewife, lured her back to Palestine, then divorced his current wife, and married his niece, who also happened to be his sister-in-law. Did you follow that? We will now pause for these commercial messages. Oh, the, the romantic entanglements of the Herodian dynasty were more complicated than a Rubik's Cube. 
And of course, John didn't mind his own business. He wasn't fly casting in the Royal Aquarium. He hurled his biggest harpoon. John rebuked Herod because of Herodias, his brother's wife. There's a proverb that advises, tell the truth and run. Well, John forgot to plan an exit strategy. So Herod locked John up in prison. Imagine that. Putting someone like John in a dungeon would be like stuffing a, a condor in a canary cage. F.B. Mayer describes the fortress of Machaerus where this dungeon was located. It's east of the Dead Sea. It's surrounded by unscalable lava cliffs and there are thick mists of steam that would rise and hot sulfur springs gushed from the rocks. It must have seemed like the gateway to hell whose fires were raging underneath. John was a free spirit. He slept under the stars. He was able to wander at will beyond the horizons. He was the kind of person who would have got claustrophobia in the saddle dome. It's hard to imagine a more tormenting ordeal for someone like John. Talk about quarantine. But at least it gave him opportunity to do something that the hectic pace of the previous months had not allowed. After the prolonged solitudes of the desert, John had been deluged with a flash flood of people, endless waves of eager seekers. But now in the dungeon, he had time to think, to process all the data, to organize his thoughts and defragment his queries. Up to now, John's theology was like a clear blue sky. But there was a question that had been slowly forming in the depths of his heart. At first, it would be like a small cloud the size of a man's fist. But it grew, bubbling, boiling, until the sky became black and the wind rose and the thunderstorm shook his faith. In Matthew 11, beginning at verse 1, we read, After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? What? Are you serious? Where did that come from? John, you need to read your job description. You're a prophet. You're boldly proclaiming God's word without any doubt. Listen to your own sermons. Remember what you said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Your whole ministry was about Jesus. Introducing him. Exalting him. And now you're wondering if it was all a case of mistaken identity? Are you the one who was to come? Or should we look for someone else? Have you ever wondered, what if, what if the Bible isn't true? What if Jesus can't save us? What if Christianity is just another religion? 
John was beginning to have doubts, and for some very good reasons. First of all, there were a number of suspicions because their style was so different. John was not allowed to drink any wine. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. Are we on the same page? And while John denounced tax collectors as wicked sinners, Jesus was going into the house of a tax collector for a banquet, and all of his business associates would be there. The fact that it was a retirement party was immaterial. A spiritual leader has no business socializing with people like that. It sets a very bad example. Can you imagine the newspapers if they'd exposed a scandal? Billy Graham attends a summit conference of mafia leaders. Things were beginning to look suspicious for John. And those suspicions, once aroused, soon escalated. And people were asking questions like Luke chapter 5, verse 33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus was just having too much fun. A man of God isn't supposed to enjoy himself that much. Being spiritual is serious business. Well, along with his suspicions, John also faced the problem of stagnation. In that dungeon, he lost his carbonation. John's adrenaline evaporated, and he was experiencing withdrawal symptoms. We've had a little taste of that through this uh, self-quarantining. Thirteen days. I spent 13 days without going out. Now, I took one day off for good behavior, but that's a long time. And in the weeks after that, you know, you waste a lot of time. And sometimes life seems to have no purpose. You can't even hug anyone. You can't go out and buy some red licorice or juicy wine gums. I can't even go out and buy my favorite tomato sauce. I just love the idea of pouring it into a bowl. And the, by bowl, I mean toilet bowl. I do that as a public service. You're just unable to do anything. So John lost his momentum, and it was so demoralizing. In the desert years, he had clearly heard God's voice. But in the dungeon, there were many other voices that turned his mind into an angry protest rally. And during this pandemic, we have heard so many voices. A few times I've watched uh, David Muir on ABC. Breaking news! He should change that to heartbreaking news. We're all going to die. I really like David Muir, but after his newscast, I feel like I have to put my faith into rehab. When you're in a period of stagnation or prolonged illness or inertia, it makes you susceptible to all kinds of suggestions, and many of them are unholy. A stagnant swamp breeds the malaria of disbelief. A dungeon window refracts the light, warping exclamation points into question marks. John was having a bad case of the jailhouse blues. 
Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Of course, the main problem that John was dealing with was suffering. That's what raises the most questions in our lives. Why do bad things happen to good people? This was supposed to be a new beginning, and yet the hills are still standing. The valleys continue to erode into shadowlands, and the roads are rougher than ever. This is not what I expected. Didn't Jesus say he came to proclaim freedom for the prisoners? Well, what about me? I'm Herod's prisoner. When are you going to set me free? But don't hurry. I'm going to be here all week. Take your time. Are you the one? Do you ever get disappointed with God? You must. Otherwise, you're not paying attention. And I think partly it's a cultural phenomenon. In our society, we have this relentless sense of entitlement that makes us frustrated with the way God runs the universe. We're like the little boy who was upset with God because he put too many vitamins into spinach and not into ice cream. I wonder if other cultures are a bit more realistic when it comes to their expectations. For example, at the Bible schools in India, they teach two subjects for the pastors, how to preach and how to suffer. They realize that's part of what they will face. <laughs> well, I tell you, I would rather audit that course. I don't like the sound of that. But did you forget who you're following? A man of sorrows who was despised and rejected? Jesus actually discouraged any unrealistic expectations right up front. In Matthew 16, 24, he said to his disciples, If anyone, anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. A cross? What am I supposed to do with that? I guess I could maybe stick it in the ground and display all my trophies on the beam. But a cross is not for trophies. A cross is for torment and torture. <laughs> but that sounds like I could get hurt. In fact, according to the Bible, God's people will suffer more than their share of opposition because of their faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not just thrown into a fiery furnace. It was actually heated seven times hotter than usual. So breaking news, heartbreaking news. Jesus is not reluctant to let you get hurt. He just won't let you be harmed. So John's faith was beginning to malfunction. But he did the right thing. He didn't turn away. He directed his question to the Lord. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? What do you have to say for yourself? In verse 4, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, 
and good news is preached to the poor. Jesus did not rebuke John for his doubt. He didn't say, oh, you of little faith, you should be ashamed of yourself. He didn't rebuke John. But notice that he only partially answered his question. John, you proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, here it is. This is what it looks like. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Even Nicodemus turned this evidence into a verdict. John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. The kingdom of God actually has little to do with Herod or Caesar. It's not about political power. The Lamb of God was no threat to the Roman Empire. In time, it would collapse under the weight of its own decadism, decadence. The kingdom of God was about changing lives radically, revising their forwarding address from hell to heaven. And that's what's happening right now. John, I could, I could tell you much more, but I'm going to give you just enough to refresh your soul and restore your faith. This is interesting because when it comes to suffering, you do not have to put the victim on your back and try to haul them all the way up the mountain. All you have to do is give them a foothold. You don't have to answer all their questions. Just give them hope and point them to Jesus. Verse 6, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And John, that requires that you trust me with the answers you don't have. You trust me with the explanations you have not been given. You trust me when it gets dark and you even trust me when you face death. I've only given you a partial answer, but it's enough to refresh your faith. It really amazes me that when I have suffered and I've been deeply disappointed and I have all these questions, I do not get a lot of answers. I get very little data. I expect essays. But all I get is an invitation. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Mostly I get a reminder of what God's promises are. So, prisoner number 93486 was not released for good behavior. Jesus left John in Herod's custody temporarily. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29 explain what happened next. John had declared that he must decrease. And in the end, you could even measure that in inches. It was about 9 to 10 inches. 
about from here to here because John was beheaded through the cunning and insistence of Herodias. But that was also the day John was released from Herod's dungeon. And as promised, the prisoner was set free and he immigrated to a better country, a heavenly one, a big sky country where the horizons are even further apart and where he would be eternally refreshed. He was now in a place where there was no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. John found a spacious paradise where he could not only hear God's voice, but he could see him face to face. By the way, John, sorry about the head, but you know, it was perishable anyway. We thought it was time for a new imperishable body. And we, uh, we've prepared some milk and honey for you. We hear that you, you really like honey. And guess what? You will never have to eat locusts again. Let's pray. Father, in this life, we face many disappointments, many discouragements. In this life, we face the kind of suffering that uh, causes our soul to crash. And yet we know that your words have the power to restore us. And it is your promises that we cling to in times like this. And those promises remind us of what you've already done for us. Because they point us to the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Lord, we want to share communion together now. And so we thank you for the broken body that is symbolized by the cup, by the bread, and the shed blood that is symbolized by the cup. And we do this in remembrance of you. All praise and honor to your name. Amen. Paul writes about uh, the Lord's table and says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So we want to do that right now. We take the bread which represents the broken body of Jesus Christ. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you do it, drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you so much 
that you were willing to pay the price, that you loved us so much it hurts. You took all the punishment that we deserved, all the guilt that was ours, you paid for it. And even though we suffer in this life, it is all the suffering we could have experienced has been set aside, has been terminated by the cross because you took away the sin of the world. You took away the punishment. So we praise you for that through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.